1: I thought I was alone at first, the lines of the timbers and the rigging making silhouettes against the bright starlit sky. But then I saw that once again Tarnora was out there too. She was standing alone in the dark, one hand on the shrouds to steady her, looking up to the heavens. High beyond the tips of the masts, infinity stretched from horizon to horizon. Aside from the minor rocks that lay dark on the sea, we were suspended between two curving worlds, the stars above and the depths below. The surface was calm enough to reflect the galaxies so that it looked as though the universe swirled all around us, above and below, as if up and down had ceased to exist and only all around remained. The moon bird was aloft and freed of its own weight. And directly up there where Tarnora was looking, the Milky Way stretched across the sky, more detailed and vivid and terrifyingly vast than I had ever seen it. I dared not breathe for fear I might distract her, might break the trance of that moment and its eternal assurance that we and our cares and our tiny boat were nothing, a floating dust mote in the stillness. Looking down to the woman before me, I saw ceaseless motion. Her head twitched between points and when it turned far enough, I could see that her eyes too were darting about. She was following movements I could not see. Happenings, events, I did not know what. Her face was reacting with fright, amusement, wonder and sorrow. Tiny changes, but unmistakable ones. Her free hand rose involuntarily once or twice, as if something startled her. But for all my squinting and staring, I could see only the beautiful speckled stillness. She turned after a long time and strode directly to me. It was clear she knew I had been behind her all along. She looked into my eyes, as few others can do and the stars lit her proud cheeks. Got made up there, she said to me. She pointed a finger into the heart of the Milky Way. Tuwera made the sun, and them stars made us. And you lot never
0: going to unmake us. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Jock Sorong is an award-winning author of several works of fiction, including Quota, The Rules of Backyard Cricket, On the Java Ridge, and Preservation. Jock's latest novel, The Burning Island, is the winner of the 2021 Historical Novel Society's Prize for Historical Fiction. And today I'm welcoming Jock to the Good Reading Podcast. Jock, great to have you here. Thanks, Greg. Congratulations on winning the 2021 Historical Novel Society's Prize for Burning Island. Thank you very much. This isn't the first award you've received, but it is the first for historical fiction. What does such a prize mean for you and for historical fiction as a whole?
1: At a personal level, there's the prize money, obviously, which is a great help. Um, The the, the recognition feels really good because there's a whole variety of historical authors who I respect and and admire, and um, just to have your work among those people's work um, feels like a step forward in career terms. I I think that the wider importance of the award is really uh, significant, and that is that A sponsor, which is a company called the ARA Group, have put a lot of money behind historical fiction writing in Australia, and um, there's lots of discussion elsewhere about the the hopelessness of funding for literature and for historical fiction and and other genres, and to have a private organisation put their money up and say we value this as a form of culture and we're going to get behind it, I think is a really significant thing, and it means that other people get opportunities um, around the genre because of something like this happening to one person.
0: We seem to be in a period of Australia's social and cultural development where we are beginning to scrutinise the accepted history, one that until recently had been conveyed to us, possibly at school, as being cast in stone. What role does historical fiction play in breaking that down?
1: It plays an important role imaginative and emotional roller. if I think about the proposition you've just put I think about it in terms of several periods there was this long long slumber which certainly extended across um, my school years wherein we thought that we had all of the base documents and we had an understanding of everything that's happened behind us um, and that all that we really had to concern ourselves with was the shape of the future there's a sort of complacency And then uh, you had the culture wars around the time of Windshuttle and Robert Mann and John Howard, where um, we were told not to be apologetic about colonialism. And I think we've now moved beyond that point into a reimagining where there are great nonfiction historians um, like Tom and Billy Griffiths and Claire Wright and Grace Carskins and all of these writers who are telling us more about early Sydney and early Hobart and and about colonialism in a really descriptive way, still within the confines of nonfiction, And then, as you say, we, we have historical fiction writers trying to build empathy out of those nuts and bolts of history, trying to encourage readers to find an emotional understanding of the major players and to try to imagine the moral quandaries. And That can only be a really important thing. At the same time, there are federal politicians getting around saying to the community, we should only be teaching the good news of Australian history, um, whatever the hell the good news is. And and that's just such a dangerously uncritical path to go down. So fiction has this important job in saying try to imagine the circumstances of these people and try to imagine the rights and wrongs of what went on. Don't, Don't just accept the archive as a series of facts that you recite.
0: Do you think historical fiction can change these entrenched opinions?
1: Yeah, I do. I do. I I don't think any one work of historical fiction can do it, but I think the wider engagement with the morality of the way Australia was settled um, can do it over time and that it requires a lot of people telling a lot of stories and a lot of people burrowing back into this source material Um, over decades before um, wider attitudes start to change. But, yes, I I don't think that you would embark upon the, the business of telling these stories if you didn't hold
0: that belief. The Burning Island reminded me that history is really made up of the lived experience of individuals, and that's, again, something that a textbook may not be able to convey very effectively. What does the entwining of imagined characters like yours and real characters, which both are included in the Burning Island, uh, and the real historical events. What do these things bring to fiction that can help us to appreciate the history more fully?
1: Well, I think that the first thing that comes out of that is that there's a responsibility when you write fiction that you have to be very, very careful with. Any of us who write and publish anything about Australia's history are contributing to uh, the, the, the mass of what's understood in the future. So if we, for instance, think back to Elizabethan England, I don't know about you, but um, all that I know about Elizabethan England is Shakespeare. Um, There's a whole lot more to know, but um, the fiction that he wrote about his time is the way that I now understand that period. And in a cumulative sense, the same thing happens with Australian history, that all of the great fiction that's been written about our past is what will become in the aggregate the understanding of it in 100 years' time. So any time that you um, go to the archive and you pluck out the bits that you want and then you make up some characters around those bits, you have a responsibility not to mislead people about the realities and, and, and about the moral questions. So when I use the source material and when I use my imagination that I try to ensure that that I am, in fact, delivering a consistent truth throughout. Although some of it's made up and some of it is allegedly the history, you can be consistent about the story that you're telling. So I I had this kind of mental image that I have spoken about before, which is that I think of the the known historical facts as pillars, and what I'm doing is stringing lights between them. Um, And as long as the reader understands that transaction, I, I hope I'm not misleading them.
0: The period we're talking about is the 1830s or thereabouts and reading this book it's it's almost as if you yourself have lived in that age what is it about that period in time that commands your attention
1: there were a lot of long nights when I felt like I was living in that age <laughs> that's for sure um well it's a few things I I, I have a long personal history with the ferno Islands and I'm very very interested in them and um I think that this particular point that I've chosen for the Burning Island, which is 1830, um, is is a crucial one of those little hinges in history where a number of major influences are intersecting, and you can therefore tell a lot about a society when you look at that one year. And and lots of other um, nonfiction and fiction writers have done this with a year in history. And and in the case of 1830, what's going on is that. Um, The sealers in Bass Strait are in their second wave, and and the second wave of the sealers were quite old men who had, in many cases, abducted women from Tasmania, Aboriginal women from Tasmania, from Victoria, and even from South Australia, and had set them to work as domestic slaves, um, doing the flensing, doing the boat work, doing the swimming, doing the packing of, of these hides, Um, They worked incredibly hard and often under awful conditions for these men. So you had that going on. And then separately, you had George Augustus Robinson, the missionary, who had sent his agents out into Bass Strait to find these women and get them out of the hands of the sealers, which sounds like a deliverance and a good thing. But what he had in mind for them was to turn them into Christians, which was a a hopelessly misguided notion that, that quickly turned into disaster. So you have these competing forces in the straits. And a lot of that activity was between Sydney and Hobart, but it was starting to develop Victoria. So places like where I live in Port Ferry and Melbourne itself, within a couple of short years, would emerge out of this sealing activity and the subsequent whaling activity. So it's really a crossroads in, in Southeastern Australia's history.
0: I want to talk about the characters in this book because the characters that you've conjured up are so real and, and beautifully etched. The two that I have in mind—they're both female. Eliza Grayling, who's the narrator of this book, and then Taunora. Both are great observers of the world around them, and and they each represent vastly different cultures in their own way. How did these two women come to inhabit your book?
1: Well, starting with Eliza Grayling, um, she is the daughter of Joshua Grayling, who was the hero of the previous book, Preservation, and. I started with the notion that I wanted to have a voyage into the Ferno Islands and I wanted it to take a structure that was something like Conrad's Heart of Darkness. In other words, a quest into the monster's lair um, and, and what happens in Heart of Darkness and, and, and the books that went before it, like the Greek myths, Theseus, things like that, uh, and Apocalypse Now, which came after it. The structure of that fable is that the person on the quest doesn't find the thing they were seeking, what they conventionally will find is something within themselves so I wanted to have a hero who went through that um, personal journey uh, as well as the physical journey of voyaging into the islands and um, once I thought hard about that I wanted it to feel very very alien to that hero so I wanted someone who was having your classic fish out of water experience so it's not a big step from there to say the best way to do this is to have a young woman who has lived a very, very confined existence in Sydney. She's a governess for a rich family. She has devoted all of her days to her ailing, hopeless father, who's um, an alcoholic who's blinded himself drinking rotgut. So she she has a very, very narrow understanding of the world. But by the same token, she is an inquiring, feisty, independent person. There's a process of persuasion Getting her talked into going on this voyage, she goes. She sees the world through those eyes, and she reports it to you, the reader. Um, and hopefully, the experience of that is that you see it the way she's seeing it, which is as an extraordinarily foreign, bizarre experience within a few hundred miles of Sydney. Tanora was um, one of those happy accidents of research where um, I, I obviously looked all over the place for all sorts of material for this story and. I was trying to read up on all of the known Palawa and Pakana people, i.e. the the Tasmanian Aboriginal people who are recorded as being a part of this history. And Tanora um, is barely mentioned in anything that you can look up online. There's a a brief Australian Dictionary of Biography entry on her. She was an Aboriginal warrior. Um, She was born somewhere around, we think, 1800 and she was abducted and taken into the service of the settler families, people like John Batman in the northeast. Um, she was moved around between families. She was then taken by sealers and traded between sealers like a slave. She really was, had a short and, and horrible life, but in the midst of it, she was taught to do domestic tasks for the settlers, and she was taught to use a firearm. And at one stage, she escaped and took firearms and, and taught other Aboriginal people to use them. And all of a sudden you have this brief moment in Tasmanian history where the European guns were being turned back on the settlers. There were other warriors out there like Tonga Longata and Kikata Pala who um, were separate parts of similar uprisings in Tasmania. It was a very different scene to New South Wales. She was, in fact, on the run in these islands. So it didn't seem to be much of a stretch for me to say that she could be briefly on the moonbird moving between islands on the run from the sealers. By the following year, by 1831, she was dead. As far as I know, there's no memorial to her anywhere in Australia. Um, There's no other depiction of her in fiction. And I just think that's such a terrible shame because despite what she went through, she lived a brave and defiant life and she should be recognised.
0: This is the second book in a trilogy that begins with your 2018 book preservation where does the final installment take us and when can we look forward to hearing about that
1: these really are three books about the furneaux islands and in the strictest sense they're not a trilogy because they're not um, sequentially following the fates of a set of characters they're really three stories about the islands in which the, the characters overlap to some extent and with the third book, they overlap perhaps less than the first two. This novel is is tentatively called Pea Jacket Point and it's due for release in September next year. And it's the story set in 1835, so five years on from the Burning Island, of what's known as the Waibolina Settlement on Flinders Island. Um, and the Waibolina Settlement is where George Augustus Robinson took the surviving Palawa and Pakana peoples of Tasmania And he placed them on this island and he built a little sort of European model village. And he tried to turn all of these Aboriginal people into European Christians. And um, that exercise spanned the years 1833 to 1847. It was an abject disaster. um, The settlement was rife with respiratory disease. Some hundreds of people died and, and the dispirited survivors were taken back to Hobart in 1847. So... 47 marks the end of this 50-year period of of quite intense activity in the Ferneau Islands, starting with the wreck of the Sydney Cove and ending with the closure of the settlement. And and for a long time thereafter, the islands really were semi-inhabited and mostly sound asleep. So you have this strange burst of activity in in colonialism, and then very, very little for another 100 years. So I wanted to explore what Waibelina was like and There's not an easy or charming or humorous way to talk about that settlement. It was a terrible, terrible misjudgment and it was a disaster. But it feels to me like you couldn't write historical fiction about these islands without grappling with that as a story.
0: As I read The Burning Island, I actually felt quite ashamed about uh, the way we've treated Tasmanian Indigenous population. But at the same time, it's also a wonderful and insightful recasting of history, as well as a deeply moving human drama. So, Jock, thank you for that experience and thank you for joining me on The Good Reading Podcast. Thanks so much, Greg. I've been talking to Jock Sarong about his latest book, The Burning Island. It's published by Text Publishing and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Luxury Read. Why not spoil yourself? Or give the gift of a Luxury subscription today. Visit luxury.com.au to find out how.